In the early months of the pandemic, the government shut down whole sectors of the economy and started paying the wages of a huge proportion of Brits. Some worked from home, juggling homeschooling their kids and figuring out how to use Zoom. Others risked their health to travel to work. Meanwhile, big tech and outsourcing companies raked in money through government contracts. Now, the economic fallout from COVID has really shone quite a glaring light on the, the scale of social and economic injustices. Um, and many of those long predate this crisis. The increase in corporate power that you see during crises like this one, when big businesses like Amazon um, tend to flourish, and also the state playing a much bigger role in the economy, yeah. but crucially, a role that's oriented towards supporting big business and big finance ahead of ordinary people. So, what can we learn from moments when the predictable rules of economic life are suspended? Who wins and who loses in these points of crises? And has the pandemic pushed us into a new form of capitalism? Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, what did COVID-19 reveal about how our economy is really run? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So for this really exciting conversation, I'm super pleased to be joined down the line by Sahil Dutta and Nick Taylor, both lecturers in political economy at Goldsmiths University. Hi, both. Hi, Aisha. Hi, Aisha. Hi, thanks so much for being with me. So alongside Will Davies and Martina Tazzioli, you've written a book called Unprecedented, How COVID-19 Revealed the Politics of Our Economy. Unprecedented was a word used so commonly to describe the start of the pandemic that it did become a bit of a running joke. Uh, so Sahil, can you tell us in the first instance why your book is called Unprecedented? Sure. Well, crucially, it was called Unprecedented? Question mark. Um, and that's because we were interested in the way that this emergency that was clearly in some sense wholly unprecedented, this deliberate overnight shutdown of the global economy, how that unprecedented situation was built upon and revealed and exaggerated the politics, policies and institutions that preceded it. And so when that economy was ground to a halt by policymakers in the, in the middle of that shutdown, what was exposed was the model that the UK really relies upon. Um, so the way that we plan our labour market, the way we do macroeconomic policy, the way we sort out public services, sort of skeletal structure of the UK political economy was laid bare. And we got to reflect upon it. And what we found, to briefly summarise it, we have this model that prioritises asset prices and rewards asset holders so that's, you know, houses, financial stocks, while suppressing wages and social security demands. And so when you've got something like this, if you've got the right to these future income streams that your assets will give you, the state will come to support and make sure that those future incomes are delivered to you. And that's what was really rammed home through the emergency. Um, stock prices increase, bond prices increase, house prices increase while GDP and wages were shot. So it was that interest in this unprecedented event with these highly precedented dynamics that we were interested in kind of exploring uh, and examining. And the crisis gave us an opportunity to really see how that was laid bare. 
Mm, and we'll have lots of space to continue exploring it in this conversation. It certainly sounds fascinating. In case people's memories of early 2020 have been lost in the fog of, of the pandemic, Nick, could you remind us what kind of big economic changes the government instituted, just so that we're all kind of on the same page at the beginning? Obviously, we should note that the pandemic isn't actually over, but some would argue that the massive deliberate disruption to the economy is. So yeah, what were the changes that we're talking about? Yeah, it, it, it is sometimes difficult to remember. Um, and that's one of the, the kind of classic consequences of uh, the pandemic, I think. But we took a particular time frame, I should note, to study in this book. And that ran from roughly the kind of spring of 2020 through to the, um, if you like, cautious reopening in late summer 2021. And one of the things that kind of bookended this 18 months or so was, of course, the furlough scheme, which was a really quite unprecedented government intervention into the labor market in the context where huge swathes of the economy had to be deliberately shut down, as Sire was talking about, a, a very unprecedented move. So the shutdown and closure of workplaces, of borders, of schools, of offices, of university campuses. And what was quite striking to us is that the government initially seemed to approach this as something that would be a kind of temporary hiatus. And um, the effort was all about getting back to work, get in the office again, when can we do that, um, get the economy going. And this dichotomy presented between the health of the economy and public health. And of course, the irony in the UK context is that the economy experienced one of the biggest hits in terms of GDP over this period, as well as absolutely catastrophic case numbers and deaths from COVID. And so one of the things that we try to explore in the book is how the government approached this pandemic as a temporary hiatus and tried to manage it as a kind of great interruption is the phrase that we used. How it tried to bridge this interruption in economic time through the use of extraordinary bailouts through the furlough scheme, through ramping up debt and so on, but also through reliance on key workers and essential services, through reliance on the kind of unpaid work and social infrastructure of, of families and communities and you know mutual aid WhatsApp groups, if you remember those. So yeah, we, we we look at this great interruption um, and look at how it allowed for some of the rules of the economy to be reset or upended as well, emergency measures introduced. And all of this revealed and exacerbated what Sahil mentioned are the, the kind of hierarchies of values that are attributed to different groups and activities in, in society. So um, one metaphor we use in the book is this idea of the photosynthetic, that the pandemic both illuminated and fed the various conflicts and inequalities and pathologies in the economy. Mm, I like that metaphor a lot. I feel like, it, as you say, it sheds light and adds colour to this very particular dynamic that we're talking about. I wanted to pick that piece up. We've kind of touched upon it a couple of times in the conversation so far, but one of the things that your book illuminates is that during periods of, of relative calm, the economy doesn't really seem like it involves politics, but 
that the pandemic really kind of shone a light on problems with the economy that were inherently political. And I'm just wondering if you can say more, either of you, about why you felt it was so important to really emphasize the role of politics as part of the economy. So I do think that there's been discussions about you know who the economy is for, for a while. And I think that's been really since the financial crisis. There's that famous uh, kind of remark over the Brexit debate around whose GDP is going to be affected, because that's your GDP, not mine, or something to that effect. Um, and I think this idea that the economy is a singular category doesn't really affect people equally, uh, and we don't all participate in the economy as equal players, is something that is very important and often overlooked, and especially outside of crisis time, if that's what this was. Those kinds of issues are kind of written out of political debate. But as political economists, uh, I think what we're always trying to show is that there is political content to economic life. And there is something about a crisis moment that really lays that bare, but it's there all along. And one of the things that we want through the book is to show that this will be, you know, that political content was there before, was there during, and will be there after. And we need to always pay heed to that. That's really helpful. Thanks, Sahil. Nick, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, I guess maybe to talk a bit more specifically about some of the things that you already mentioned, in fact, and how they have always been political in some sense, but they really politicized. And I think this is especially the case in terms of what happened to work and our working lives more broadly. Obviously, the work relationship and the employment relationship, I think, is inherently political. And it's it's very much about a kind of unequal bargain often between employees and employers. And our labor market has really been characterized by this highly unequal bargain, usually around one's relationship to the nature of flexibility in the labor market. So our labor market has always been organized and governed by this guiding logic of flexibility, which says that the employers shouldn't be burdened by strong employment protections uh, or social welfare demands, because these are harmful for, you know, I don't know, economic dynamism, and they encourage welfare dependency and all the rest. And instead, we should prioritize employer discretion to hire and fire people to set wages and to manage workers as they see fit. And the effect that this has had, I think, in terms of how welfare and the labor market have been managed and organized more broadly, is that people went into this pandemic in highly unequal positions within this flexible labor market. And it depended, you know, who was a key worker, what sort of key worker they were, who could work from home, um, who was most exposed to the virus, who had to take on extra caring burdens and so on, that all um, had a consequence for how well people did within the labor market across the course of the pandemic to date. And something like the furlough scheme actually, I think, directly disrupted politically this market-based logic of how the flexible labor market was governed because it was an extraordinary intervention. And it was, of course, absurd to say that the market should flexibly adjust 
in the situation where work was, you know, impossible to obtain because huge swathes of the the economy had shut down, or it was impossible to perform on on public health grounds. So I think in all kinds of ways, our work and working life has been politicized. And some of these may, you know, have have a legacy going forward. Absolutely. Let's let's zoom in on a few different areas just off the back of that. I want to start by talking about debt, because in the in the book, obviously you talk about this quite a lot. You write that there's two different kinds of debt which were used to keep the economy from collapsing during the lockdown stages of the pandemic, which we've discussed a little bit already. But let's go deeper on the first one. So the national debt that was taken out by the government, despite record levels of government borrowing, as lots of listeners will know, the national debt isn't really costing us very much. So Sahil, can you tell us a bit more about that one? Sure. Again, this is building on stuff that has been in place since the 2008 crisis, really, and the response to it was really exacerbated. And this has been around growing the public debt and then using the Bank of England's asset purchase program or quantitative easing to buy up government debt. And therefore, when you've got lots of people buying government debt, it pushes the price of, the, of government bonds down or it keeps interest rates low, to put it to put it simply. And the extent to which this was done was enormous in the COVID pandemic. So we, in about two weeks, doubled the total QE portfolio that had been built in the last, uh, in the preceding decade. And it meant that the state was able to borrow incredibly cheaply, um, despite growing the debt massively. And it showed that there's a real capacity to public debt and the monetary capacity of UK policy making is very big, but it's not been one that we've mobilized really for public ends a lot of the time. We are seeing that the effect of this QE program and the effect of this enormous increase in government debt wasn't to support and generate and, uh, I guess, build a new and equitable care economy, so to speak, or something like that, but was the effect of it, not directly, but the effect was to sustain asset prices that I mentioned. And obviously, there was lots of other important things that were done with that government spending. Um, The furlough program was important to be doing, um, like a lot of the emergency spending programs, but it just showed what could be done and how flexible monetary capacity is yeah, no. Can you explain? I'm a little bit confused basically about how all this works because well, I have two questions. One of them is, does that mean then that because obviously we've had a decade of the government saying that we can't spend as much as we need to on public services because we have to reduce public debt. So first question is, did the big borrowing during the pandemic then kill that argument? And is that a good thing? So I think the big borrowing during the pandemic demonstrated that we can borrow for public purpose. There was a a sense that this is an emergency that we need to deal with, and therefore we're going to grow the debt, and that's just how it's going to be, and we'll find ways to deal with our bigger debt. And so there's the sense that actually the question of public finance isn't the sort of economic bottom line, but is a political commitment. And so if we could take that same commitment to the climate emergency, to the care economy, you can make this argument that you can use public debt to support the economy or to support a particular political program. Um, and so without doubt, the arguments that we use to justify austerity in terms of public finance were always a total fallacy and shouldn't have been mobilized in the way they were and shouldn't have been repeated by the various politicians and media outlets that did. Um, and I, hopefully one of the legacies can be 
of the pandemic that we deal with the question of public debt as it was shown to be a political issue rather than an economic bottom line without politics. Okay, that's really helpful. The second thing I was confused about, you've written that the change in the public spending and borrowing has benefited people who make money off stocks and shares and homeowners, even though the rest of the economy was slowing down. And it'd be great to understand exactly how that works, because that's always been something that I find confusing. We need to be quite careful about it because it's not a direct sort of the government is going to buy houses and therefore is pushing up house prices by, um, directly. It's more that the effect of government spending and in particular the way that monetary policy works and so not just the government spending, but the way that the asset purchase program worked, the way that QE worked was that it pushed up asset prices. Um, and that means stock prices, uh, in particular. And that came alongside other policies to support house prices in particular. So like the suspension of stamp duty is one example, which helped to stimulate the housing market at a time when it could have been not collapsing, but it could have been um, restricting slightly. And so it's speaking about the way that the collection of policies worked out to inflate asset prices whilst GDP and wages were were suppressed or fell, that is the interesting effect. And that's not an outcome of any one singular policy, but is the outcome of the infrastructure of or the structures or the skeletons of the UK kind of political economic model, which is what the whole kind of book is about. Um, so it's trying to express that there's not a direct link of like, hmm, how can we rise these asset prices today? But the effect of the kind of collection of policies over a period of time has meant that that's the model we've ended up with. Mm, okay, so that makes sense. So the various interventions that the government made around, like in and around the pandemic specifically, that was the kind of knock-on effect of them, even if it wasn't necessarily the intended effect, because that's the way the economy is structured. Exactly. Okay, okay. So let's move on to the second type of debt, care work. So how much was the economy dependent on unpaid care work during the pandemic? Let's start with that. So Nick, could you give us thoughts on that one? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this is another realm of the economy that in some ways always needs to be treated as political and hasn't been and has also been ignored in economics often, because the, the market economy essentially refuses to recognize either in terms of the status or remuneration, the care work that underpins it whether that's done unpaid or underpaid work within the household or across the formal care sector itself. And, you know, care was revealed as absolutely essential during the pandemic. And accordingly, you know, care workers were understood as essential workers. But, you know, more broadly, it's really striking what has happened to care during the pandemic. Four and a half million more people have been driven into unpaid care work. And nearly 3 million of these are juggling work and that unpaid care work. And this is you know, a realm that feminist political economists have long argued needs attention and needs redress because it's also fundamentally in crisis. We're in a situation where the capacity to care is increasingly pushed onto individuals and families, but their ability to deliver it is becoming increasingly more difficult. And, you know, you can think of the classic dual earner household in which there are 
two adults going out to work, but they also need to manage all other kinds of caring responsibilities for their children, for the parents. And this was really highlighted during the pandemic, not least in the kind of highly gendered care burdens when it came to the kind of extreme periods of lockdown where schools were closed and people had to you know, educate their children at home while they were working from home or while they were going out as key workers. And the sad reality is that this unpaid care work was already being done predominantly by women. They did about 60% more than men. And this trend has only been exacerbated through the pandemic. We drew on lots of survey data and, and other studies, you know, great work from Women's Budget Group and so on to show that this intensification of work was falling on women and working class women even more so through the pandemic. But at the same time, you know, this work was highlighted as essential and the kind of social infrastructural glue that kept us going through the pandemic. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that this form of sort of care was seen as this limitless well we can just keep on drawing down upon. You can keep on going back to people and saying you're driven by love, you're driven by vocation. You can keep on putting more and more work in and being more and more exhausted. And that's true of all those laborers, paid and unpaid, in the care sector of the economy. Um, and that kind of source of, of wealth is considered infinite, whereas the public debt is always expressed in terms of like, this thing is going to be you know, you can't just keep on drawing down a public debt. We're going to have to repay it any minute now. And this strange dichotomy of one is treated in monetary terms as very finite, and the other is treated as in care terms as potentially infinite, when really the way it works out is almost the opposite. You've got a lot of flexibility with public debt, especially in the UK, whereas to keep on drawing down and asking more and more of care workers both professional and, and and just at home in our everyday lives is exhausting, and, and you know we're seeing it with the care sector and care workers who are exhausted. That that well ha- is is running dry. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. Actually, I've never really thought about it, but I think it it seems to mirror the way the kind of discourse around labour and labour flows in the economy in general, right? In the way that people think about it, which is there by its very nature, the way that the kind of market stays competitive is is by continuing to push this idea that there will always be someone else to take your job. There'll always be someone else willing to do it. And if not, we can bring them in from somewhere else. And I, yeah, I just, I find the idea of actually upending that and saying that that's not actually the case at all. And and you do hit a wall with it. And maybe that's what we're seeing, especially when you're not willing to invest in wages and working conditions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it, It feels really important to lift that up. In the book, you also talk about mutual aid networks as an example of unpaid care work. And now, obviously, that the cost of living crisis is really starting to bite. We're also seeing food bank use skyrocket. And this is something we've talked about on the podcast a few times before, this idea of unpaid community-based and community-organized interventions being used to plug gaps left by the state. I'm wondering, Nick, if you want to say a little bit more about that and um, how that's played out in your research. Yeah, what I will say is that we kind of identify mutual aid and the care economy as another of the essential wells of debt upon which was drawn during the pandemic, thanks to the kind of strong history and literature that comes out of feminist political economies. I I always want to acknowledge that 
And there's been lots of fantastic books that have come out through the pandemic on the care economy and the importance of it, including Emma Dowling's. And and she points out that, you know, in some ways, what we're seeing with forms of mutual aid and volunteering at food banks and in other places is an extension of what we understand as you know, social infrastructure and care bonds beyond the heterosexual typical nuclear family, which in certain ways, of course, is a progressive thing, a good thing. It shows how our community ties and caring relationships are developing. But of course, on the other hand, the work, the unpaid care work that's done in in food banks and that's relied upon in households is also used as a kind of buffer in times of economic turbulence. It was like that after the financial crisis, and it was even advocated for um, in government policy in the form of the big society. And it's it's about a withdrawal of state support for care and kind of social infrastructure binds us more broadly. And that has come at a really kind of catastrophic cost to many people in terms of, you know, a decade of austerity. And what we saw going into this crisis is that, you know, mutual aid groups are really important and the kind of neighborly ties that bond us, but the social safety nets were really often quite lacking. And, you know, to give one example, Unemployment protection in 2019 was lower in terms of its real value than it was 30 years previously. So who picks up on those kind of vulnerabilities and who supports those vulnerabilities? Well, it often falls to the care of women, of migrant workers, racialized minorities who are expected to perform this work cheaply and often with minimal job security. Mm, I have, we need to move on because I've got quite a few more questions, but I find this, this area in particular really fascinating. In, in particular, thinking about how when the pandemic happened in the first instance, obviously it was really galvanizing for lots of people to see the pop up of all these mutual aid groups and be able to kind of come together with neighbors to get involved and support people around them. And I think it was a really important way of feeling connected and all the things that we know to be true about the benefits of that kind of collective action. But it's also, I think, quite remarkable that what we didn't see was like much more of a clamoring for the government to do more. And the fact that people were more willing to set up a local mutual aid group than they were to take part in any kind of coordinated political action to pressure the state to do more, as you say, when we were entering the pandemic in a worse financial situation than any of the three decades that preceded it. It's troubling. <laughs> uh, but but let's move on to a different area. I want to talk about housing. I want to talk about rentier nationalism. So uh, we need to crack on. But yeah, let's start with housing. So for some people, lockdown meant working from their spare room at home or their home office, you know, saving money and time on commuting, getting lockdown puppies, all that kind of stuff. But for others, it meant risking their life traveling to work or getting stuck at home in an overcrowded house or, or even worse. So let's talk about how our housing system affected the health crisis and more generally what that disparity looked like. Maybe we start with you again, Nick? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that, you know, this is a really important aspect to the pandemic. And part of what we try to argue in the book is that the household 
was already becoming a kind of pivotal node in our economic system. Again, with that kind of photosynthetic effect, this has really been fed and illuminated. And as you rightly know, people experienced lockdown and being housebound or working from home in very different ways. A lot of people weren't able to work from home, of course. And the relatively privileged ideal would be someone who owns their home, who's in a professional job, able to work online without perhaps the the kind of responsibilities of care work within the home. But that was not by far the experience for everyone. And the kind of various inequalities that already structured the economy and asset ownership kind of revealed these inequalities of the household even further. So if you own your home, you were much more likely to be working from home. If you lived in social housing, you were much more likely to be a key worker having to go out and risk your life. And of course, the space of the household became essential. If you didn't have the space to isolate from family members, you would uh, run the risk of transmitting the virus to them. You would be stressed because you'd be working at your kitchen table alongside perhaps other family members and have these caring responsibilities. So that's kind of one aspect. And the, the other aspect is how the household has been enabled as a node in our economic system by the platform economy. And what you have is a relatively privileged asset owning class who can work from home while being serviced by this kind of footloose gig economy workers delivering stuff to their door. And we, you know, a lot of us will have experienced this. And so, you know, the households has, has become this pivotal node, but it's, it's written through with all these really important inequalities in terms of how it's experienced as an economic site of production and consumption. Yeah, and we've seen like the the place of platforms, you know, the big tech giants, Amazon, Uber, Deliveroo, that sort of stuff. Those are companies that had been making big headways before the pandemic, obviously. But the huge increase in our reliance upon them during the pandemic is something that w- won't easily go away. Our habits as consumers and the way that the labor market structures those those gig economy workers are both things that will endure and i think that's that's going to be an an interesting thing going forward is how how we deal with this fact that the home has become such a crucial site of both production and consumption for white collar workers whilst um it's serviced by yeah by what nick was saying this sort of very very insecure and flexibly employed more precarious workforce Mm, so again, it's about looking deeper at the at the layers of activity and infrastructure that were in place long before this and that continue to create these deep inequalities uh, in the system. I want to take a step back from those areas just to look at the economic system as a whole, kind of uh, using that as a bit of a springboard. So your book says that all of these changes have come together into a new form of capitalism, which you call rentier nationalism, although I know some people pronounce it rentier, Uh, but that makes me feel funny. So I'm just going to say rentier. Uh, Nick, could you explain what rentier nationalism looks like and who benefits from it? Yeah, this is, I guess, our very tentative effort to work out whether we could identify a kind of type or model of capitalism in what we've seen over the course of the pandemic. And I say, say tentative because 
it's a little ambitious to be inventing new models of capitalism. But we tried to look at how the kind of key centers of economic power that we've been talking about have, have been rewarded and empowered and amplified by COVID-19. And this term, rentier nationalism or rentier nationalism, is us trying to highlight the what we saw as the reassertion of the nation as an economic unit and imagined community in this period. And you can think of this also as a very kind of post-Brexit thing, Britain first, Brexit Britain context. But also, again, to specify who the main beneficiaries of this mutation in capitalism were. And those beneficiaries, again, are the asset-owning households, financial elites, various platforms that have expanded and and grown in power and profit terms, but also the kind of outsourcing contractors that have been feeding upon the state as it draws down on what is increasingly recognized as a, a much deeper well of debt. And that, I think, is partially one of the kind of distinctive things about rentier nationalism, that it's coming at this time of unashamedly larger state higher levels of public borrowing and spending. And we see these contractors trying to kind of position themselves in relation to the the government and, you know, proximity to to the Conservative Party became something of a business model during the pandemic. And I mean, there are many different ways in which we try to conceptualize the nationalism aspects here. But I think it was also significant that this kind of came at a time of rhetorical and symbolic appeals to the nation, which have become increasingly integral to the the kind of claims to legitimacy that the state makes. So to give you some concrete sense of this, this was about, you know, the stoking of culture wars around wokeness and the media panic around asylum seekers, um, except where they are Ukrainian, and the kind of various culture war agendas that have driven the government towards policies like the Nationality and Borders Bill, this idea to offshore uh, asylum seekers in Rwanda. And this also has economic consequences in terms of the way that the selective policing and closure of the border during the pandemic exposed a very class-based system of mobility. You know, at some point we were talking about shipping in migrant labor in the tens of thousands by aeroplane to pick and pack fruit and vegetables. But at the same time, we had this post-Brexit rhetoric that was about the closure of the border. So rentier nationalism is our kind of um, way of trying to draw together these different aspects and different kind of relative forms of economic and cultural and political empowerment through the pandemic. Yeah, and I think it's just important to remember that, and one of the things we were trying to emphasise, is that rentier nationalism wasn't born in the crisis of COVID, um, and it wasn't born, you know, in even the preceding five years, but it's been something that has been baked into the UK uh, political economy for a while now. And what the COVID moment did and what the book is hoping to try and capture is all of those different trends, whether it's outsourcing, whether it's the hostility to to, to migration, which has been much longer than even 2008. All those different trends came together to give COVID a particular character, um, which we're we're naming, 
the rentier nationalism, but I, I, I would want to emphasize the sort of longer construction of it. Yeah, absolutely. That was going to be one of my questions because it certainly doesn't seem to be a new thing. I wanted to also come to you, Nick, just asking, I know we, we've mentioned the refugee crisis and I and I wanted to bring up the anti-refugee bill because once again, it was voted down last week by the House of Lords, but the government you know, still seems determined to, to push it through amongst other very repressive legislation, such as the restrictions on protest. And I'm wondering, Nick, what all of that has to do with the economy and rentier nationalism and what we've been discussing? Yeah, I, th- I think it's um, a great question. In Well, first of all, I should qualify that Martina, my co-author, is really the expert on refugees and borders. But to kind of try and address your question, Will Davies, one of the authors of the book, has noted that often what the the Home Office does is quite performative in a way, and it makes these big gestures trying to shut down safe routes to the UK and, you know, deport asylum seekers, everything from the get home vans through to this latest Rwanda scheme. But I think more broadly, the there is a, a kind of economic aspect to the kind of selective mobility of people and workers here a lot of the the kind of building back better global britain brexit plans draw on this idea of needing to selectively attract global talent through various visa schemes that obviously prioritize those who are able to afford them, who have been able to afford the various educational qualifications that would permit them to take up a visa. And so we see a kind of class-based system of mobility being encouraged and baked into the bordering of the UK. At the same time, there is this aspect, you know, I mentioned the agricultural workers, which is not seen as skilled work, and the government wants to kind of selectively appropriate and bring over migrants from Central and Eastern Europe in their tens of thousands to pick this stuff and then send them immediately back. So there's a kind of weird contradictory appropriation of of labor and management of labor that is an aspect of this kind of policy trend. Yeah, I wonder if one of the aspects of the reassertion of the nation um, comes from the way that some of the older categories of governance, particularly over that kind of post-war period where you speak about the economy and you speak about unemployment, you speak about these kind of macroeconomic categories, as they cease to have much meaning because people relate to them very differently, you know, the economy looks very different from different perspectives, you then insert new collective, I guess, belongings to be part of. And again, it's reliant on the same sort of exclusions. The nationhood that you belong to is is predicated on opposing various others, be they racialized minorities, migrants, particular ways of living. Um, but that relationship between the assertion of a new collective community with the crisis of others, I think, is, a, is an important thing to consider, maybe. Yeah, definitely. It seems to be kind of one of many really interesting dichotomies that we've kind of touched upon throughout this episode, for sure. We've kind of painted a, a bit of a bleak picture of the economy so far, which isn't unusual for the New Economics podcast, but I wanted to end on a bit of a high. So, because your book does that too, you end with hope, kind of talking about the political protests which have taken place over the last two years. And I'm wondering if we can do the same, if we could wrap up by you telling us a little bit more about what's been going on around all of this that we can get behind. Sure, maybe I can start with some hope and Nick can 
make good on it. <laughs> there was a quite inspirational situation, which we've spoken about at the beginning, about the necessary dependence on each other that the the crisis or the the emergency revealed. That was a quite an everyday thing. We were reliant on our neighbours, we were reliant on our community, and we all stepped up to do that and participate in d- different ways you can. And it kind of showed that there is this kind of baseline communism, to use uh, baseline communism as a David Graeber term, but there is this baseline mutual aid that society relies upon all the time. And COVID revealed that and centred that. And I wonder if it allows us to think about what is the fundamentals or the basis of the good society of living well, um, and how can we facilitate and support that? One of the ways of trying to express this is how do we support and build social infrastructure? There was a lot of discussion in the how do we rebuild after COVID was about kind of infrastructure and you know the, a lot of the Green New Deal discussions can often focus on all of these really important big scale state led infrastructure projects. But as important, and what COVID really showed was that the social infrastructure is much more everyday, much more kind of in existence already, but can be easily supported if we we use some of the tools that we mobilize in public finance to support to support social infrastructure development. And so that's something that I definitely took some hope for, uh, at least. Yeah, I feel hopeful. That was good. <laughs> I, I do feel hopeful. Thank you. Thank you. Nick, what have you got? Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, I guess to kind of riff on what Sahil has been saying, I think one of the efforts that we make to uh, bring things back a little bit to those different wells of debt that we talked about earlier on is to try and think about how we bring together the power of the state balance sheet, which has been seen as finite, but in in fact, as we've seen is capable of incredible things and incredible investments in times of urgency with the needs of care and social reproduction, that kind of work that goes towards the support and care for people on a daily and and intergenerational basis. So thinking about ways in which the state finances can be mobilized for investment in social infrastructure and the care economy, as Sahil was saying. And this is not even on the basis of needing to kickstart growth and productivity, because, of course, one of the contradictions is that investment in these sectors won't necessarily yield productivity gains. Um, you can't you know, care for someone faster. That, that has adverse effects on care. And there's something of a coming together of the need to address uh, environmental crisis and reshape the economy accordingly with the needs of the care economy, which of course is reliant on human relationships above all and relatively less destructive materially than a lot of the other aspects of the economy. And we think that this, you know, highlights a really important case for how we can support the care economy in a variety of ways. And I know that NEF has worked on a lot of these thinking about you know reduction in the working week, childcare, um, new models and democratic models of social care. There's a lot out there, but the pandemic has really driven the case for bringing the power of state investment together with the needs of this care economy. 
I think that was a brilliant and very hopeful end, actually. So I, <laughs> I feel very good. Yes, it was great. Thank you both so much. Um, but sadly, that is all we've got time for on this week's episode of the New Economics Podcast. Thanks to both of you so much for being with me. Can you tell me when your new book is out, uh, first of all, and also generally from both of you, if people want to find out more about your work or hear more of your wonderful ideas, how can they do that? Well, the book is out and you can find it at some oh. good bookshops uh, or on hive.co.uk, <laughs> which is a good alternative to Amazon because um, it at least supports uh, local bookshops. And otherwise, I can be found on Twitter at Sahil Dutta. You can find information on political economy at Goldsmiths and information on our book and uh, and research in, in our department at perk.org.uk. Mm-hmm. And that's P-E-R-C, isn't it? Yes, P-E-R-C. Because yeah. there is also Perk with an I, uh, the Public Interest Research Centre, which is different, also wonderful. There's a lot of perks. Um. <laughs> <laughs> just not the uh, the type that we're after, unfortunately. Um, no, just kidding. That is great. Thank you both so much. Any last things you want to plug, things you want to say? I guess just a shout out to um, our co-authors, Will Davies and Martina Tazzioli, because this book was really a, a collective enterprise and it was it was great working with them to produce that in an environment that usually encourages very individualised academic pursuits. So, yeah. Mm, another hopeful end. You're going to give me a toothache, you guys. So sweet. Uh, wonderful. Thank you both so much. That is it for today's new economics podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. Don't worry. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>